Hello, everyone. It's February 22nd, 2022. It's another JWST Deep Dive. It's all about alignment. You got 18 mirrors a million miles away. How do you get them all looking at the same thing? Well, Ben's got the details on that painstaking process. All right, let's get the show in focus and lift off. And we through the tower. Welcome to episode 347 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I was looking for some, uh, you know, pre-news topic banter, and I just came across something that I just saw like just a couple minutes ago, uh, that debris that was caused by the Russian ASAT mission a couple weeks ago. Apparently, that's mm. causing a whole squall of close approaches, and they're calling them conjunction squalls, which is mm. a new term that I guess they just dubbed. Mm. But uh, this is affecting certain constellations just because of the orbit that they're in. They are much more subject to it. So it's like there are these little spats of conjunctions that keep happening over the course of several weeks. And uh, it looks like uh, according to the Space News article, as many as several thousand, if not tens of thousands, like like every week. This is, I think, defined as coming within 10 kilometers of the satellite. So, like, we're not mm-hmm. talking about it like a very, very close approach, but still. Wow. So you think, uh, have you, you seen that uh, conjunction uh, streaming uh, applet that basically shows uh, uh, plots of conjunctions and... Um... It's just running continuously, and I wonder if that'll reflect some of these squalls, which is a terrifying word for (laughs) (laughs) on-orbit near misses. uh. Yeah, squall, that that makes it sound almost more like the movie Gravity, which, as we know, was not particularly realistic, but um, Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's like, you know, if you you have to, if you have just a huge cloud of debris that's coming at another satellite constellation and, you know, they're intersecting, then I guess it would look something like that, except you wouldn't be able to actually see it, but Mm -hmm. yeah, kind of terrifying. Another JWST rant. Oh, I've moved into the rant territory, have I? Okay. Oh, not a Great. rant. No, you're, no, you're, you're right. This is our That was Yeah, you're right. That was a bad choice of words because a rant implies that you're like you're angry or something. So this is another J, <laughs> JWST. I don't know. What was What's the word, word I called it? It's a deep dive. It's, it's, our, it's our series, you know? It's our... Rabbit hole monologue diatribe lecture. On, uh, Thanks, uh, chat. Yes. <laughs> Ramblings. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> all right. Those are well, all very good descriptions. Yep. All right. Well, mm-hmm. while you guys are busy reading me, I'm going to get busy reading my notes. So this time I wanted to talk about uh, alignment. Oh, Deathkin says dissertation. Thank you. That's that's very generous. Um, so I want to talk about uh, the alignment phase. You know, we're we're pretty well on our way through it. I actually I should look up and see exactly where we are right now. Uh, before the end of this. Um, but the whole alignment process is another one of those things that feels like a black box to me until I went and read uh, more about it. Um, there are so many great GIFs and videos of, of the alignment taking place, but none of it really makes sense. Like, well, I see all this motion. What the heck is going on? Uh, so it's, you know, fly to uh, uh, moth to the flame kind of situation. Yeah. Again, I don't know exactly where we are through this list, um, but I know that we've already gone through the first step, which is establishing the boresight error. Boresight error is, is pretty simple. I don't know if they 
are necessarily breaking it up into each of the 18 segments. I don't believe they are, but it's basically the difference between what the telescope is looking at and what like the star trackers are looking at. Um, the, the exact alignment of your telescope. It seems weird that that would be something that would be something that needed to be baselined, but it does. Um, the, the telescope is, you know, rigid within itself. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was so necessary to dial it in um, in relation to all the other parts of JWST. So the recurring theme here is going to be deployment error uh, or de- deployment tolerances. As they're doing all the different deployment steps, yes, each one of these mechanisms locks into its final position, but not with the kind of precision uh, that you'd need to actually run a telescope off of it. So the uncertainty with which each of those deployment mechanisms freezes into its final position, um, even though it's very rigid, it's still uncertain. And that, that uncertainty is compensated for by the segmented primary mirror. Like that, that's kind of what we've been talking about this whole time. That's one of the major things that, that needs to be accounted for, not just, you know, the, the alignment of the mirror relative to itself, but also relative to all the other moving parts. And, and so when they start doing this alignment, they establish boresight error just by looking at stars. And through all of this, when I say looking at stars, 90% of the time, I mean using what's it called? Not Mircam, a uh, near cam <laughs> using, using near cam, the near infrared camera, um, to do imaging. Um, it's got the biggest sensor, uh, and the, the best wavelength that is sensitive to for, for these kind of tasks. So, They'll, they'll ju- they just point the, the telescope in a direction and start taking photos. And that kind of gives them a basic idea of what their, uh, what their boresight alignment is. Um, in this case, um, it was f- under 15 arc minutes. I don't know what the, uh, the exact number was, but, um, because it was under 15 arc minutes, they were able to use a single, uh, isolated star in the sky. Like they pick a star that's brighter than all of its neighbors and they can build the image mosaic that we're now, uh, very familiar with, um, where they sweep back and forth in a grid across, um, this single isolated star and see where all of the mirror, um, where all the mirror segments are pointed. Alex in the chat says near cam contains a wavefront sensor. Uh, and actually, no, it doesn't. Uh, but we'll, we'll get there. It, it, this is, this is actually really cool. So, um, if they wound up with, um, boresight error greater than 15 arc minutes, um, they weren't going to be able to use, they, they weren't going to be able to find a sufficiently isolated star, or at least it'd be very difficult to. Um, and so they would have to use, uh, like a, a crowded field and do math to, uh, to figure out where everything was. It's a lot more difficult. And in fact, it's so difficult that the time to find each image that's reflected by each of the segments, uh, increases with the square of the boresight error. Um, once you're, once you're out of just using a single isolated star. Okay. So that led them to, you know, some of the, the images that were incorrectly labeled first light. But once they have this, you know, this rough idea of where everything is, they need to get uh, the telescope into a rough focus. And they use the, that image that they sweep, they swept back and forth over 
uh, to start working on the focus. They call that the image sweep step. So the, the problem here is that the focus that they have as the telescope is flown, like just when it gets there, it's good enough for finding the boresite error. Um, in some cases faster than others, but it's good enough for finding the boresight error. But as they're going through some of the later alignment steps, they need focus that is good enough that they can use the fine guidance sensor um, and, and the, the fine guidance mirror to sweep back and forth over whatever uh, object they're using for that particular step, rather than moving the entire observatory back and forth, which is what they did for the, the boresight error test. There's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here. Maybe you can see it. You need to know which image belongs to which mirror segment before you can focus them good enough to do science. But you need to focus them before you can identify which one is which, um, at least if you want to do so in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, but the nice thing uh, is that it's it's not quite a, a tight, solid uh, chicken and egg problem. There's a, a enough of a gap between good enough focus to identify each mirror segment's position and the really, really good focus that you need to actually do observations. Um, and that gap is wide enough that you can just adjust all the mirrors at once towards, you know, an average focus for everybody. And then you can keep working. Uh, Colin in the chat asks, what is boresight error? Is it just when the physical axis of the telescope doesn't align with where the mirror is focusing. Yeah, more or less, right? It's where the actual telescope is, or where the telescope is actually pointing versus where you think it's pointing. Exactly. I mean, just if, if you if you ran like the prince, the axis that runs in the direction that the mirror is aimed at, that's the boresight axis. That's what this boresight error is. I, I I'm not this very knowledgeable about space telescopes so much, but I know when you want to look at something in the sky using a ground-based telescope, you slew to the object, but even as good as you are with controlling your telescope and where you want it to point, it's not going to be perfect. There's going to be that uncertainty or that error there. And so once you hopefully get close enough that you can see the, you compare the field of stars that are there and you look at a star map and you say, okay, well, I want, you know, to be focused on this point here or centered on this point here. And so you then do a little fine adjustment after that point. And so that's what I guess the boresight error is the first yeah. sort of step. Yeah, it's it's real rough. Um, Colin then followed up and said, so it's similar to collimating a Newtonian. And I, like this is where Dennis and I's uh, uh, knowledge is going to have to overlap. I, I don't believe so. I think collimating is more like focusing, right? Collimating, right, is, is just throwing the light in a straight line <laughs> towards you. And so in the case right. of Newtonian, it's already focused. And so you just want to redirect it to oh, a flat sure. mirror so it reaches your eyepiece. Sure, sure, um, sure. Okay. That's, that's, it, I, so I guess it's similar in a sense that you want to make sure that it's going to hit your mirror in yeah. the right spot. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Okay. Right. So, and, and in case you don't know off the top of your head, right, the, the idea with the Newtonian is the light comes in, it reflects off the primary, and then rather than bringing it to the focus, what's typically the prime focus, uh, you put a little flat mirror there that redirects it off to the side of the telescope, and then you can stick your eyepiece or your eyeball off to the side, and voila. <laughs> uh, you're not underneath the telescope looking at it. So, right. So, they, they do rough focus. Like, they literally just get an image 
where you've got one star reflected in all the mirrors, right? They haven't done any alignment. So to get that image, you have to move the telescope back and forth until each one of those mirrors picks up the star. And then you can get all of those images. You kind of, they, they represent them as a mosaic. I don't know if that's how the, the math is actually run, but they take each of these images, 18 images, right? And they, they go, okay, well, this one's out of focus by this much, and this one's out of focus by less. It's, it's closer, but if we move them both down, their average will be closer to being in focus, if that makes sense. They're, they're adjusting them all at once. Nobody's going to be perfect, but it'll bring all of them closer. You optimize over all of them simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good way to put it. So then they're able to do their segment identification. And this was one of the things where I was like, my first instinct cannot be right. But yeah, actually, you just tilt each mirror one by one and see which image moves. <laughs> That's all you do. <laughs> but uh, the segment identification period is also a nice opportunity to find any missing segments. If you weren't able to get one of those missing segments to pick up your um, your isolated star. Um, you can swirl them around in a, in a spiral until it happens to catch the star. And then you're like, okay, cool. I know where that segment is. Once they've identified each of the segments, they move them into a nice, uh, sort of orderly hexagonal array. So that's two nested hexagons in the same shape as the primary mirror segments. Some of these moves were anticipated to be quite large. I don't believe any of them actually wound up being that big. If you look at the the image of the unaligned positions, it's they're they're pretty well clustered. However, if they had to move them too far, um they probably would have had to uh spiral some of them around uh and re-identify them. The reason for that is that the larger once you start doing large moves with these segments, um the uncertainty of you know, the input versus the output, the input being how much you command the motor to move and the output being the actual direction that the mirror is pointing, uh, that uncertainty gets, gets pretty big. Um, and that's a constraint that we'll bump up against later, but they, they were prepared to handle that very, very early on, early on in the, in the sequence that is. So once they've done that, they can start doing their, their global alignment, um, and this is where we start getting into the idea of wavefronts. Wavefront sounds like a very fancy term. Uh, it makes me think of the Nexus in Star Trek The Next Generation. It truly is not that. It's used in a lot of different contexts. Um, but here, um, the wavefront is just a, a repeatable point in the, the wavelength of the light. So you could, you know, reference wave troughs or or wave crests. Um, but that, that's like a fundamental idea. A wavefront is just a point in the phase of the light as it's going up and down. That's the, the phase is that sinusoid, the up and down, uh, wavefront is, is just picking a point that we can use to reference the phase. Now, um, when we're doing wavefront analysis, it starts getting more complicated, but like for now, just like when we're talking about wavefronts, just think the phase of the light. Boy, it, it gets so complicated. I don't even know if it's a good idea to start there, but that's where I had to start. So you're, you're coming along with me. So once they start getting into the global alignment phase, they're actually able to engage the FGS, the fine guidance sensor. Um, and they will pick the best segment as the guide star. So remember, we talked about this, uh, 
in our interview last week or the week, the week before. And the, the FGS gets you really fine control, but it needs to be able to see a star through the mirror. It's a finer guidance than just a normal star tracker. You know, I, I think it's helpful when, when trying to think about wave fronts and how they are going to be interacting with the optics is to shift from thinking of uh, individual rays of light, like straight line beams of light, and instead think of how you've got your light source and uh, it's going to be waves of light emanating out from it, you know, isotropically in all directions typically. And so like ripples in a pond. So think of it in yeah. that sense, you know, the, the, the phase of that ripple as it reaches your telescope. Right. The, the wave front has a shape. So like waves hitting the shore are linear. Their wave fronts are, are, are straight line. But ripples in a pond, the wave front is circular. And, and that's what we're talking about. And with optics, you're constantly changing the shape of that wave front. And as we're talking about, um, using wave front analysis and all this complicated stuff to focus these guys, it sounds really complicated, but really all that is meant is what's the shape of the mirror? How is the shape of those waves changing as they're going through? Chubby says more like an interferometer. Yeah. Um, same same idea and in fact interferometry is going to come into play uh, as an actual principle but there, there there's so many little nooks and crannies of detail like you could pretty much name any concept and we're going to get to it at some point <laughs> okay so they they engage the fgs so that they can hold really really still and each mirror gets adjusted in piston um so remember the hexapod um has six actuators two pa- or three pairs of actuators and that controls the the tip and tilt the the pitch and yaw. Um, and then cylinder is the seventh actuator in the middle that pulls and pushes on the middle of the mirror um, in the same direction as light is reflected from the mirror. So it's changing the the bending of the mirror. Um, and that, that r- relates directly to focus, right? So they're going through and beginning to do some rough focusing. And what's interesting is as they're doing this, as you move any mirror in piston, its image also moves um, o- around the image. Luckily, it's it's a known relationship. And so when you adjust a mirror in piston, you also adjust it in tip and tilt. Um, so in all, all seven of these guys have to move in concert to not only change the focus, but to not change the position of the mirror. And, uh, as we're going to get into some of these more, uh, wave fronty kind of things, I wanted to point out that, uh, wave front analysis is done on the ground. There is no hardware on board to do wave front sensing, which is really cool. Um, the way that you typically will focus optical equipment on the ground is you have, like wavefront analyzers that are, you know, things like, uh, micro lens arrays that you can stick into the path of the light and change all, you know, change a cross section of the light and see, um, where each of these micro lenses focuses their little piece of the light. And it, it breaks, it, it kind of quantizes, um, the, the stream of light that's coming through. You take, you know, it, it's essentially taking, uh, laminar flow in a hose and pushing it through a sprinkler head or like a, a shower head so that you break it all up in individual parts. If, if that was to happen with water, you'd be able to tell if you had 
water moving faster on one side of your hose versus the other because now your shower head is going to have stronger streams on one side than on the other. And that, that's kind of the same idea that they do on the ground. But JWST doesn't have any of that hardware to bend the light into a more helpful arrangement. Instead, it just takes images and computers on the ground do all the analysis digitally. Uh, in my notes, I wrote, it's the digital era, baby. Like, we can do this now. <laughs> we got computers that, that can take the place of hardware in, in certain instances. Okay, so once they've got the the global alignment started, where they've put all of the um, all the mirrors into this hexagonal array um, and done some real rough focusing on each one of them. Then they start doing image stacking. And this, this is the fun part. This is the animations that we see over and over. To make this a usable telescope, they have to be able to do image stacking to a sub-pixel accuracy. So when I say image, I mean the image that each mirror sees as the instruments are looking out through the tertiary, the fine guidance mirror, the tertiary mirror, the secondary mirror, and then onto the primary mirror, and then reflecting out into the stars beyond. I mean, that's backwards, but each, each of those segments has its own image. So we're going to have to take those images and stack them up so that they look like, uh, they are coming from one single mirror and the resolution of the instruments has to be lower than the accuracy with which you stack the image, right? It just kind of makes sense. You don't have to stack the image perfectly, but it has to be better than you can detect with your instruments. An additional requirement here, not only do you have to be able to do sub-pixel accurate stacking, but you have to wind up with your actuators in the center of their fine actuation range. I've talked about these actuators so much, so I'm hoping that this makes sense just when I say that sentence. But because you need to be within the fine range of the actuator, you wind up with this whole dance that you see in the GIFs where the centers of each image are moving around and kind of swirling and going too far and then coming back. And and that sequence is really what fascinates me. Just conceptually, the idea is, big picture, is you want to use the wavefront sensors to get an idea of just how precise your mirror segment arrangement is because there shouldn't be anything distorting the wavefronts other than like i don't know interstellar gas and things like like typically mm -hmm. you know you you do adaptive optics on the ground because you got a turbulent atmosphere that's changing every second but in space right that's the whole idea is you get above the atmosphere so you get away from that so is that true we will talk about maintenance at the end but but it's true enough yeah we'll get there Okay. As they're doing this, this whole image stacking process, um, they actually do it in three, three iterations. They do it three different times. And I, I believe that to some extent they are alternating between piston adjustment and tip tilt adjustment. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure that that is true in a, in a very rigid way. Uh, to be sure they do image stacking and then um, they also fine tune the focus called phasing. And, uh, and, and I, I believe they're for the most part jumping back and forth between the two. So, like I said, they, they're going to do this stacking, uh, task three times. Uh, the first time they're going to be using centroids. Then the second and third time they're going to be using phase retrieval. So centroid, uh, stacking is 
exactly what it sounds like. You look at the fuzzy blob that you have and you find the center of that blob and then you stack all of the fuzzy centers. The reason that you can do this is because changing the focus changes the pointing of each mirror in a known way. So as you change the focus, you can keep the centroid in the same place as the, as the image comes into focus. With that said, centroid stacking is a lot tougher than it would sound. Um, when you are using, or when you're doing a large move in tip and tilt, your accuracy is about 1%. Um, so if you're doing a large move, the best result you can get is moving to within a few pixels of where you wanted to move. And when I say large move, large moves in this context are actually very small. They're roughly 80 pixels on near cam, 80 pixels, and you can only move within a few pixels uh, in accuracy. It's, it's really kind of abysmal. Um, on top of that, Spot confusion happens after you've done your first move. So if you're trying to stack up three images, you put the first image where you want, then you move the second image to within a few pixels of where you want, and then you have to go, oh, wait, where is it actually? And then when you move the third, now you've got the, the first and the second blocking the way. So if one is off center, who is it? You can alleviate this to some extent by taking photos before and after each move, but it, it really... When you have to measure where you've actually moved to, it gets really difficult. Um, because of this spot confusion after the first move, um, you are basically doing all of these moves blind with a 1% accuracy. On top of that, you have a mechanical restriction. You need to stay as close to center on your find range. Like, it, it, that's a critical aspect. You have to do that. So you have to do all these moves in a way that you stay in the center of your fine range. Um, and then the, the final major restriction for the centroid stacking step is that the FGS needs to be active the entire time. If your telescope is drifting around, knowing where you're pointing is not going to be possible, right? Um, so FGS needs to be active, which means that it needs to be able to see a guide star through the telescope. So you can, you can pick one of them, the, the best focused one to, to track off of. But as soon as your stacking operation has consumed your selected guide star or, or your selected image, uh, you need to switch to a different one. And eventually you're not going to have any satisfactory solo images left. So you'll have to swap to using your stacked images for guidance. It's a very complex question. Um, for the, to, to get over all these, um, you basically have to do the dance that we see in the GIFs. For the first stacking operation, the centroid stacking operation, uh, they do it in, they, they break that step down into three further steps. They build an array of six images three times over. So they take six images and they bring them close to the center, um, about 40 pixels away from the center. That's a big move that they're going to have to do. So they move them roughly into place and then they spend some time tweaking them and making sure they know exactly where everybody is and that they're all identified. Then they move each image to the actual center and then beyond it so that now the center of the fine range is where the center of the image is, if that makes sense. Then they can move everything all the way back 
to the original small array of, of six images. So now you are in that small array of six images, but your center is biased towards the direction that you want to go. Because of course, when you, when you end a small move, uh, your fo your fine range is behind you. Deskin in the chat uh, asked something which had just popped into my mind too. Can you give us, uh, can you remind us of near cam's dimensions in terms of pixels? So when we're thinking about these 40 pixel shifts and whatnot, exactly how far is that relative to the size of the detector? Right. So uh, that that's an excellent thing to keep in mind. Um, near cam has 10 arrays of uh 2084 by 2084 pixels. So I I believe the answer is 2084 by 2084. The uh, 2048. <laughs> Oops. Oh oh, they're stacked side by side. Okay, thank you, Deathkin. So it's uh roughly 480 pixels by 8160 pixels. That seems about right. Um, and Deathkin here is going to cite the JWST user documentation. So I will go ahead and put that link in the show notes. Uh, cause that is, that is very good. A given detector is going to be about 2000 on a side, mm -hmm. but then they're arranged in mm -hmm. two next door groups of four, uh, two by twos. Yeah. And I believe that they are using all of them. They, I don't know. They, they might be centering on one, um, on one sensor or on one detector so that you don't wind up with seams where you don't want them. That, that's a really good context to have because when we're talking about, you know, building an array of images 40 pixels away from the center where you're actually going to put them, understanding that that is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of just one sensor uh, is really good. You can see not only all of your... Uh, all of your segments at once, but you can see a lot more than that too. Losing uh, a segment is uh, going to be kind of tough to do at this point. It, it might happen, but it's, it's kind of hard to do. All right. So uh, we've built a tiny array of six images. We bias their centers, the, their fine ranges towards where we're going to put them. And now we've kind of got them back in the, uh, in the small hexagonal array. When they get to that point, they again have to dial in their location because they've done, you know, something that's close to a large move. And so now their uncertainty is back up. So they need to tweak their positions and, and get them back into this array, um, in, in a sloppier way, but, uh, a, a well known way. And they have to know where they are while they are not on the center because as soon as we move them in towards the center, we start being blind to which which one is which um to where each where each image actually is so now you've you've moved the first group of of six into the center now you can do it with three more groups of six for all 18 segments you take them from the large array down to a small array that's clustered around the center you bias their fine ranges you dial them back in so that you know where they are, and then you can creep them in towards the center and you're done. Then they move on to the coarse phasing step. Um, and this is where we start getting into interferometry. Coarse phasing, I believe it is only altering the focus of each of these images. Um, stacking them on centers gets them very close. There, there's a little bit of tip and tilt that gets done here, but I believe it's, it's very small in comparison to the 
uh, piston adjustment, the focus adjustment that's being done. Um, all right, so course phasing is done using dispersed Hartman sensors. Um, this is probably what people mean, uh, especially uh, people in the chat right now telling me that there is uh, wavefront sensors on board. This is probably what they mean when they say wavefront sensors. Um, dispersed Hartman sensors, the, the DHSs on board, are not actually sensors. Although, to be fair, most wavefront sensors are really uh, an array of uh, lenses, but then you have to have a sensor in those microlenses focal planes. So uh, I, I think it's really fair of me to say that there is not wavefront sensing hardware. It's, it's just a uh, wavefront, wavefront altering hardware, right? So this is going to be a little tough to describe in an audio medium. There are two DHS uh, masks is basically what they are. And they, they flip down or maybe they rotate into place. I, I don't know, but they're placed over, um, the near cam in the same way that you would put in a, a filter. And so they have 10 individual apertures on them and they, they really look like a refill pack of disposable razors where you have these long rectangles all stacked on top of each other. Um, and in this case, they've got what looks like pink plastic in the middle. Really, it really looks like a disposable razor head. So the way that these are arranged is if you think about the, the 18 segments of the primary mirror, they're in a hexagon. But if you were to lay horizontal lines going from flat to flat, you would, you would wind up with columns of hexagons. If you were to rotate those, those lines 60 degrees, so now you're going tip to tip, you would wind up with different, different columns of, of hexagons, but they're all the same hexagons. They're not 90 degree column row kind of pairings, but they're orthogonal in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. So, if you've got 18 mirrors, you can split that 18 mirror hexagon in half so that you have the two, uh, three mirror wings on each side plus two of the, the outer ring mirrors on each side plus half of the top and bottom mirror, right? If that, if that's a good way to think about splitting it in half. And then the inner ring gets split up three and three because it's a six member ring. So each of those two halves has two mirrors uh, side by side stacked on top of each other going out around the uh, the middle hole where there's no mirror and then coming back down to the bottom. Um, and so if there's five pairs on each side, that's 10 pairs overall, given that the top and bottom pairs share the top and bottom mirror. That's how these apertures are arranged. Each aperture covers two mirrors, um, and only the top and bottom mirrors have more than one aperture on them. And there are two Hartman sensors, um, Hartman uh, uh, masks. One runs flat to flat, one runs tip to tip, um, or, or point to point, I guess. And so you... Well, actually, I guess it doesn't because it's 60 degrees. So it's mm -hmm. flat to flat versus a different flat to flat. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but you, you wind up um, selecting two different sets of 10 
pairs of mirrors. And what a DHS does is it creates lines of light on the mirror, which is maybe another reason why this seems so much like a disposable uh, razor container to me. Um, but you, you put, I think it's 10 very fine lines onto your sensor. Uh, and each one of those 10 lines is made up of light reflecting off of two different mirrors. So as those two different mirrors, um, as their light combines, you wind up with, with that light interfering with each other. The important component of that interference is not the difference in the wavelength of the light because um ideally you would do this with a, a a single color of light like a very narrow band uh, of light that's all one color uh monochromatic as best you can do uh, in reality it's going to be a little fuzzier because we're looking at actual stars not you know perfect monochromatic collimated light sources in the laboratory but you wind up with this interference from two different mirrors and the major component of that interference uh is a result of their focus relative to each other and because you are pairing each mirror up with two different neighbors you kind of wind up with this matrix of relative values that overlap enough that you can compare any value to any other value by making kind of this, this big network of comparisons. You kind of Which, chain them. Yeah, exactly. To their neighbors. And, oh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what's really cool is that the image that's produced by these guys is called a barber pole image. Um, it's, you know, like 10 thin lines of light on the sensor. But if you look really close, each one has diagonal lines running through it that look like a barber pole is what they call it. I think these look more like candy canes. But the the slope of the line, well, actually, it's the distance between each line. But I think it's easier to imagine the, the slope of the line changing to create, you know, a very boring barber pole that just has flat rings running around it. So when the barber pole is spinning, it, it, the rings don't appear to move up or down. Uh, that, that's like the perfect focus, um, where everybody is the, these like flanges, these ridges are not actually ridges are just lines stacked on top of each other, making up the bigger line, uh, being more and more out of focus results in longer and longer uh, swirls on that barber pole so that the lines appear to move faster and faster and faster as the barber pole uh, rotates. Um, what's interesting about this is that because it's interferometry, um, which like is mysterious and magical, you don't necessarily, you, you don't have a minimum detection precision as much as you have a maximum uh, error detection. So um, the, the maximum that this thing can actually handle is a difference of 350 microns or so between each mirror. The cat, like the before flight calculated deployment uncertainties were believed to be well within size, well within uh, 350 microns for each mirror. It, it turns out they, they actually were well inside 350 microns. What's cool though, is that should something have gone absolutely crummy, 
and the deployment uncertainties have been way wider than we thought they were going to be, you can actually scan through piston adjustment uh, for each of the mirrors and you can actually get your detection range up to several millimeters worth of error. Um, but, uh, that, that wasn't actually required. All right. So once you've got all of you, you've got this chained two dimensional, uh, 60 degree, uh, network of all these comparison values, you basically apply linear regression, um, and you come up with, well, you have to apply linear regression to 18 sub aperture measurements, right? Cause we do two sets of 10. Um, and that gives you piston corrections for all 18 segments. Linear regression is very, very simple and very, very difficult. Like at the same time, it, it's really hard to imagine if you don't understand it. If you do understand it, it's incredibly simple. Um, like my best example of that is, um, I made my partner sit down and watch a video about, um, training a neural network. Uh, cause I was like, this, this is like actually really cool. Like this math is doable by, by somebody like me. And so I sit, I sit her down and we watch, uh, 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 three blue, one Brown. And she sits there watching and she's like, okay, okay. I don't understand how. It, and then she goes, oh, it's just linear regression. I go, yeah, it is. And she's like, oh, well, that's boring. And she, I mean, like she didn't turn away, but she basically like went back to whatever she was doing. Cause, uh, uh, linear regression is really a simple concept, um, but it's, it's cool that it can be applied to training neural, uh, neural networks and also focusing space telescopes. Sorry for the, for the digression, but I just, I love when I see linear regression pop up. Okay. That's coarse phasing. Uh, fine phasing, uh, is, is really cool. They take out the, uh, dispersed Hartman sensors, these, uh, disposable razors, and instead they put a lens in the way of near cam, which, uh, defocuses the image coming in from the stars. Um, and then they, they take images, uh, using this, this fuzzy, like cross-eyed, uh, uh, setup. And they can run a phase retrieval algorithm, uh, on the ground. And that gives you tip, tilt, and piston adjustments to get as good as you're gonna get in this setup. Uh, there, there's one more step. I don't wanna make it sound like there isn't another step after this, but phase retrieval algorithms, um, I, I didn't look into them too much, but basically you can use this fuzzy image to detect the focus in a, in a very uh, precise way. Um, I believe it's, it's very similar to the interferometry effect that you get on the highway when there's an overpass with a chain link fence on either side of it. I don't know if any, if anybody listening has ever experienced this, but, uh, it happened all the time in Chicago. Uh, you have chain link fences on each side of the overpass. And as you get close, not only is the ratio between the distance from one fence to the other and from the nearest fence to your eye changing, but also the position of the fences is changing as you're moving under them, right? The back fence appears to be moving up relative to the front fence. And so you get this really cool effect where first you see just gray fuzz of fence, and then in that gray fuzz appear dark lines. And then as you get closer, those dark lines move closer and closer together until you can see 
a, a magnified image of a chain link fence. Um, and that image of the chain link fence is getting smaller all the time and it's moving upward all the time. And so I mentioned that because if you, that, well, I guess that's almost like a pinhole camera, right? And that, that's kind of what this feels like to me. When I take my glasses off, I've got really bad vision. But if I squint or if I hold two fingers up in front of my eye very close, I can kind of focus that light. Um, that's not what's happening here, but Oh, Morier. Yeah, the Morier effect. Thank you, Alex. Um, it's very cool and it happens in very distracting ways sometimes in, uh, in digital photography usually. Um, but if you, if you kind of hold the idea of the Morier effect in your head, you kind of get this sense of how having fuzz can be a good thing. Um, and, and that's what's happening here. Uh, there's an algorithm that you can run on this on these fuzzy images that can actually look at the mirror as a whole and see how the mirror is changing the wave front. Um, and you, you defocus your view, I believe, so that you're collecting light from across or you're able to like average light across the entire mirror rather than having a very well-focused star in the middle of the mirror and only seeing that. You really need to be able to see how the light is reflecting off the entire mirror in order to be able to understand how you need to change the entire mirror to get a better focus on one single star in the center. Dennis, how much of this is in your wheelhouse? How much can you elaborate or correct me? Uh, I've got nothing <laughs> really to add to that other than evidently it's pronounced moire. Uh, but, but as far as anything substantial, I can't, I couldn't really clarify it any better than I think you did. So if, if I, um, did not describe this well and you happen to be, uh, better versed in optics than I am, please write in and correct me. I, if you have a better analogy, if you have a better way of explaining this, I, I would really love to hear it and I'd love to, uh, repeat it on the show because, um, we're getting into weird optics, right? Weird optics. <laughs> At a distance, right? <laughs> They're out mm-hmm. at L2. Like, I hope that at the beginning of the segment, I impressed upon everybody how difficult this really is. We're, we're focusing this telescope without taking any direct measurements of it with uncertainty and blindness at every step. Um, and yet by doing some really clever, uh, but fairly simple tricks that your optometrist doesn't want you to know about, they're able to get really amazing precision out of this thing. Okay, so the the final step is called multi-instrument, multi-field sensing and control. And basically what they do is they take defocused images at five different field points using each of the instruments. To to defocus for this, they add or subtract 100 microns of a secondary mirror piston um, instead of, you know, a little flip down, hey, this makes you, a little flip down, uh, drunk goggles or beer goggles right in front of each of the instruments they they just defocus the entire thing then they do their phase retrieval algorithm again uh using all the instruments like data from all the instruments at five different points five different fields of view and what's really cool about this is that um it allows you to capture any field dependent errors if you picked a star to do all your focuses on uh and the star is bad for focusing or in for one reason or another multi instrument multi field sensing uh will take care of that for you however it's bad 
for a large number of reasons. Um, some of the instruments undersample in some wavelengths. Um, using multiple uh, fields results in broadband light instead of like nice, tidy monochromatic light. Near spec, uh, the instrument itself is bad for this. It has a micro shutter array that you have to account for. And then there's also uh, the requirement to not defocus too much because you need the FGS up and running and the FGS is looking through the mirror. And if you defocus the mirror, you also defocus the light that's arriving at FGS. So there are all these different limitations, but, um, by collecting lots of data, right? All your instruments in five different fields, um, you wind up with, uh, a lot of, a lot of data that you can kind of you can you can finesse the fuzz out of. Now, uh, one of the questions that we ran into that I said, hang on, <laughs> we'll get to it later. <laughs> All of this requires maintenance. Correct. There is no atmosphere changing uh, the the seeing of the telescope. However, the telescope itself is not monolithic. The telescope is not perfectly rigid. And so the telescope itself is going to drift. And so they've thought of this ahead of time and it's already baked into the scheduling. They will retake their fine phasing measurements uh, every two days and that will allow them to track alignment as it drifts in one direction or another. And right now the baseline plan is to perform phasing corrections every two weeks. We'll see if they need more, or if they need less. Uh, but right now they're going to check every two days and make corrections every two weeks. That, that, that is really what I was wondering about that more than yep. anything. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right. that That's your uh, JWST uh, deep, deep, deep dive for this week. Short and sweet this week. We just got two. Why not? Dennis, what's the first one? First up, Chandra X-ray Observatory suspends operations. Chandra mission specialists have put observations with the X-ray telescope on hold while investigating the cause of a power supply issue. Operational since 1999, the spacecraft is operating normally, with the power anomaly occurring on the high-resolution camera instrument specifically. Mission specialists plan for the Great Observatory to resume normal operations with its advanced CCD imaging spectrograph soon. This latest issue isn't the first for Chandra, which had suffered a gyroscope problem in 2018 and an anomaly with the same high-resolution camera in 2020. Next up, China reviews human spaceflight plans and communications with the U.S. government. Among its crude spaceflight ambitions, China is researching and developing a next-gen reusable LV, a winged space transportation system, and a two-stage Methalox rocket drawn from SpaceX's Starship slash Super Heavy concept. Differences include the use of a gas generator engine rather than a stage combustion one, and the vehicle vehicle would be capable of lifting 20 tons to LEO, one-fifth what SpaceX's Starship is designed for. Meanwhile, the government has stated that it is open to establishing formal lines of communication with the U.S. for space debris issues. After the Tiangong station performed two maneuvers in 2021 to avoid close approaches by stalling satellites, Chinese authorities said they attempted to make contact with U.S. officials about the close approaches but received no response, while the United States government said they never received any such communications. So, let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have three winners. We have Deskin Miller, Law Loving, and Uncle Willie. And the clue was, this is why we keep the mezuzah rolled up. And if you don't know what a mezuzah is, well, I mean, like, even if you don't, you could just search it. I feel like this is a this is a pretty easy clue if you just did a little bit of Googling. But I guess maybe that'd be cheating, um, although I feel like some people do that anyway. <laughs> no, so, like, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to set the official stance for the podcast, but my stance 
is that uh, Googling is strictly forbidden, um, but it's completely unenforced. So you have fun however you want to. I, I will, like, if I can tell that you Googled, I am not going to say a word. Uh, so it's, it's like the speed limit, you know, like you're supposed yeah, to drive the speed limit, but you can really drive five, 10 over. If you do 15 over, you're going to get pulled over. But like, I'm, I'm not going to pull you over if you, if you do a 15 Google over, <laughs> a 15 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> over Google. Like you, you do, you do what you want to do. You make it fun for you. If that's, if that's doing a Google, then you do a Google. I mean, I feel like that I would have to, but, um, just be, for like most clues, because like, you know, approximately what this is about, but you have to like, figure out it, yeah. you know like you have to figure it out exactly so you have to google I, a couple things i would be shocked if anybody was ever able to guess any of these things without googling like i, I would right. really yeah. be shocked but uh yeah so that was a clue uh the event was the 22nd of february 1996 and it was the launch of uh columbia on sts 75 you know so we're going back to the shuttle era and i guess i'll just explain the clue really quickly so a mezuzah and why you know, do we need to keep it rolled up? Well, okay. So the main event that happened on this particular mission was, uh, the demonstration of a tether satellite system and, you know, which kind of has to be spooled out or rolled out. And a mezuzah is a, is a, I don't know how to just, how to describe it, but it's very common among the Jewish community. It's basically yeah. a little piece of paper with a prayer inscribed on it that you then roll up and you put inside a little container that you then mount right at your front door or the entrance to most rooms in the house, except for the bathroom, apparently. And that's my best understanding of what a mezuzah is. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a talisman, right? It's a physical object that, that represents religious significance. And in the, in this case, it's, you know, it's a requirement for, uh, for an Orthodox home, but also like it's a, it's a blessing. It's a way to, um, invoke a prayer by by touching it and and like sorry i'm I'm gonna go off on a little bit of a tangent here but like mezuzahs are so interesting as with all jewish law or or jewish teaching like they're because there's no central uh authority all the different scholars and rabbi have have their own interpretations and so um, mezuzahs are one of the fun ones where they incorporate uh, multiple teachings. Uh, there was a disagreement whether it should be mounted vertically or horizontally. And so they mount it tipped like diagonally. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. yeah. Which, which that. is nice because it kind of, if the top is tipped inwards towards the house, it kind of looks like it, it's like God is coming into the room with the prayer. But like, I just love the, the pragmatism of like, well, all these different authorities disagree. So we're going to kind of do halfway in the middle. Compromise. Yeah. Yeah. So why this mention of mezuzahs? Well, uh, so there were two crewmen on board this mission, Jeffrey Hoffman and Scott Horowitz, both Jewish. And they got the idea since they were sharing a bunk that they would attach a little mezuzah just there on the bunk with a piece of Velcro. And so that's how the clue came to be. Uh, so you have a rolled up mezuzah and you have a rolled up uh, space tether, which we will now talk about. <laughs> All right. So the tether satellite system, uh, this is something that was actually conceived of uh, with the Italian space agency. So there was a previous mission. This is actually the second one. The first one was several years prior to that, and uh, that ended in failure. Um, they were trying to get full deployment out to 20 kilometers, which is insanely long for a tether, um, yeah. and it snagged. And so they only got, I think, like 8 to 12 kilometers, something like that. They didn't get too far. Oh, I think it was much shorter than that, if I remember correctly. Hundreds of, like, 100 meters or two? 
800 feet. Just 800 feet. Well, that's that's just pathetic, yeah. Um, <laughs> so that problem occurred because of a little bolt that was actually protruding in the, the tether deployment system. So mm-hmm. it got snagged on a bolt, and it could not be extended any further. But they fixed that on this mission. They actually redesigned the deployment system entirely. They made like a lot of changes, and they made some changes, I think, to the, uh, the tether as well. Um, but they did have a hiccup on this mission too. The tether satellite system is basically the tether plus the satellite. The objective of the mission is uh, to deploy the satellite to 20 kilometers above the shuttle to gain an understanding of the electromagnetic interaction between the tether satellite and orbiter system. The other big objective was to gain an understanding of the dynamical forces uh, that act upon the tether and the satellite. So basically you have like two bodies in orbit and they are separated. So that means that they're going to go into two different orbits, but they're still joined by a tether. So what happens? If I remember correctly, the idea is that they deploy it into a higher, like, right. like radially out, which then makes it want to slow down, but instead it's getting pulled forward and sped up, which pulls it then into a higher orbit. And so it's uh, it's it's a it's an orbital kite. feedback in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. orbital right. kite. <laughs> kind of, go. yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, basically they were testing to see if you couldn't, in fact, put a satellite into a higher orbit without having to expend any reaction mass. So this is actually a pretty cool way to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's exactly one wow. thing that, that you could do. So let's talk about the composition of the tether itself. So it's 2.54 millimeters thick. Um, it has a Nomex core, and Nomex is a polymer designed by DuPont, I believe. Um, it's kind of like Teflon. And then around that core, you have 10 copper wires in a helix twist. So basically, this is your conducting material. And then around that is an insulation layer of fluorinated ethylene propylene, FEP. So that is the next layer, and that uh, surrounds the copper wire core. And then around that, you have a layer of Kevlar, and this is what provides uh, the tether with its strength. Then around that, you have another layer of Nomex, and uh, that is to protect the uh, interior from atomic oxygen as well as possible abrasion. So that's your tether. How it's deployed is pretty interesting. So we've talked about shuttle missions before where they have, um, I believe, at least I think we've talked about missions before where they have used the, uh, the Space Lab MPES, the Mission Peculiar Equipment Support Structure. So this is something that kind of sits in the rear of the shuttle bay, and it can actually rotate up if you needed to. So basically what we start with is the real assembly, and this is what the tether is wrapped around. So this is approximately 10 centimeters by 1.2 meters, so it's like a long spool. Then uh, the reel has a brake and a reel motor, and the motor acts essentially as a generator during deployment because it actually has to provide resistance in order to control the velocity of the departing satellite. Mm. And it can spool this out at a speed of about 4.5 meters per second. And then from that reel assembly, it feeds into the LTCM, which is uh, the lower tether control mechanism. That primarily measures the tether's tension, length, and speed. Uh, So that's kind of what that is used for. And then from there, it has to go into the deployer boom. So the boom is this big structure that extends 12 meters up from the shuttle bay, and that is necessary in order to clear the shuttle's vertical stabilizer because obviously like you don't want to come into contact with that and cause damage to either one of them. The deployer boom is a uh, retractable structure. It's basically like a lattice structure that extends 12 meters. From there, the tether climbs up through that. Then it feeds into the UTCM, which is the upper tether control mechanism. So this is another mechanism which the tether has to be fed through. So we're talking about like a lot of little pulleys and so forth. Like I don't know how many, but a lot. I mean, this thing is a very circuitous path. And that's important once we come to why we get to the inevitable 
failure. So the UTCM, uh, again, that is located at the top of the boom, uh, that contains a vernier motor, which is a new device I've never heard of before. I don't think it has any relationship to a vernier thruster. It's basically a type of electric motor that's uh, to overcome the inboard friction. Um, and then from there, it can feed that past a couple of other little gears and pulleys, one of which is a tension meter, and that measures the outboard tension. Then you have a pyrotechnic cutter, and there was actually a, a pyrotechnic cutter down in the lower tether control mechanism. So there are several points at which you can cut the tether if something happens, if something goes wrong, and you need to do so. Um, and we'll come to that again in a second. And then one last thing is the high voltage static discharge resistors, and those will discharge any current that builds up, which is bound to happen, which does happen. Um, we're going to talk about electrostatic buildup in a second. So the TSS-1R failure, they were supposed to get it out to 20 kilometers or 20.5 to be precise, and they got really close. They actually got to 19.6 kilometers. They were almost done deploying, um, and I guess, I mean, I don't know, it's, I guess it's just bad luck or maybe good luck depending on how you look at it because it, at least it didn't happen at several hundred feet, like you said the first time. There's some pretty good video that you could watch of this. Um, you can look at submission highlights and you can see a camera recording that um, Hoffman was taking of this very long arc in the tether. And remember how I was, how we were talking about how what happens when you have two satellites in orbit and you have one that's going into a higher orbit, but they're still tethered. I guess it takes on this particular type of a shape, you know, like the tether will arc. It's not a straight line. It's not linear, um, but it kind of arcs. And maybe that has to do with some other electrodynamic reasons, perhaps. I think that might be part of it. There might be some kind of like, I don't know, drag that's being imparted by the Earth's magnetic field. I'm not sure. Um, it's really hard for me to figure those things out. Um, yeah. But it does have a, you know, a pretty peculiar shape. But um, just as he was taking that recording, something happened. He noticed it going kind of slack. And then he noticed these little ripples. And then he basically shouted out, the tether snapped, the tether snapped. Um, it's going away from us. So pretty crazy. Um, I do recommend watching the video. It's it's pretty neat to see because you're you know looking at what's, for all intents and purposes, 20 kilometers worth of cable, and it just goes slack in space. And it looks pretty cool. Um, kind of mm -hmm. scary too. And it's a good thing that it snapped, or he had said then that it snapped just at the top of the boom. And that's a good thing because if it had snapped, when you think about it, towards the satellite, right? So if it snapped somewhere much further up, then the cable will come back towards the shuttle. And that's an emergency situation. That's when you fire the pyrotechnic bolts and then you have to actually fly away. You have to maneuver the shuttle away from the tether, lest you get wrapped up in it, I guess. You would you wouldn't want a long charged object yeah. <laughs> potentially <laughs> uh, impacting and wrapping around the shuttle. I mean, like it it is so bad because yeah, there's charge to consider. There's the fact that it's a tether, and if it gets wrapped around, it can apply a lot of force to very delicate tiles. Like, it's bad in every way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess, thank goodness for small favors, right? Isn't that the expression? So, so it broke at the boom. Uh, not at the satellite. And once it broke, it actually started pulling away at about three meters per second. So clearly this satellite wants to be in, you know, its own orbit. They actually lost sight of it pretty quickly after that. And I think that they were going into night just as that happened, actually. So they couldn't see it at all. Then they had to, you know, try and pick it back up or they had to try and find it again once they were back in daylight. There was even talk about possibly retrieving it, but that would have left them with a very small fuel margin. So they decided to not do that. I don't know what they would have done. How do you retrieve 20 kilometers worth? of tangled up tether no idea um possibly it was just to retrieve the satellite maybe but um so mm -hmm. 
So mm-hmm. I'm thinking that that's probably what that was actually, not the tether itself, because they can separate uh, the satellite from the tether. But again, you're having to interact like you're in close proximity. What What was their contingency plan? Did they have like, is the tether severable remotely from the satellite or would they have to go out there with like wire snips i don't know now that i think about it because there was no reason to ever have it separated from the tether you were either going to reel it back in and if you couldn't you would snap off the tether and let the whole thing drift free because you don't want to be interacting with the tether so maybe not um yeah that's interesting yeah that's a good question i'm not sure but needless to say they didn't try to retrieve it um they didn't uh have the fuel margin for that, and I don't know. That just that, that sounds like a pretty a pretty dicey thing to do. Um, they would have to go into the higher orbit first, and then they would have to rendezvous with it. And this was uh, whose was it? Europe's. The Italian space agency. Um, they provided the satellite and the equipment on board the satellite, and the NASA. They furnished the tether and the deployer system. All right, so where were we? Okay, it goes into a higher orbit, and um, it continues to operate for a couple days. They, they get some good data at ground control, so it's not a complete loss. But um, So what's the cause of the failure? So the conclusion was that the tensile load was actually nominal at 65 newtons. The current was nominal at around 3,500 volts of direct current. The conclusion was that the manufacturing process was very difficult for such a long tether and that the shop conditions were not super clean. Uh, mm. That's basically what it comes down to. So what happened was there was an arc that was initiated in a breach in uh, the FEP layer. So remember when we talked about the insulation layers, there's one that is wrapped just around the copper wire, which itself is wrapped around the core. That layer closest to the copper wire had some little bubbles that were basically part of the manufacturing process. They didn't get them out. These bubbles are at approximately, you know, like one atmosphere. And so when you get that into the vacuum of space, they're bound to expand. And there were contaminants as well. So the arc was induced by high voltage current, which caused combustion products that then in turn provided a charge pathway to sustain flow within the LTCM. It basically closed the circuit. <laughs> yeah. So basically, there's many ground paths. Once you have that arc occurring, it's like feeding through all this equipment right there within the shuttle. So it was basically grounding to shuttle, which is not good. <laughs> and that caused the Kevlar to kind of like center away and burn away. And mm-hmm. since that's what provides the strength of the tether, once that gave way, the whole thing just snapped. And then that was it. So they have a very detailed analysis of um, how this happened. So from the feed system, once it left the actual spool and then fed into the lower tether control mechanism, uh, they started to notice all these weird fluctuations in voltage. They could tell essentially it was continuously arcing to different objects like as it fed through that lower mechanism and then up the boom and then into uh, the, the upper control mechanism. So it was just, you know, continually arcing and then one last arc just there at the top was enough to blow the thing. Plus it was more tension on it too because it did not have the motor at the top that was basically holding it in tension. So so, you know, that's when the full force of the satellite that was pulling on it, that's when it snapped it free. So that was not good. Um, but at least, again, like I said, it snapped at the right spot. Um, they then retracted the boom and closed the bay. And uh, that was that. They did not try to retrieve it. Yeah, this, this is the quintessential wild things you could do at shuttle. <laughs> wild things uh, you could do at shuttle? Yeah, this yeah, is one of them. 19 kilometer long charged tether. Now, now I, I looked up because I was going to ask you how dangerous was having a twenty-kilometer-long 
tether <laughs> just kind of whipping around in low Earth orbit. But apparently it deorbited within a month. So, um, but during that month, it was more likely to cause, you know, or to, you know, strike something than most objects. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lo lots of volume occupied means that it's going to deorbit quickly, but it's also going to hit things quickly. I just wonder, I wonder if current was induced into it by the magnetic field of the earth. Cause like that's what, that's one of the ways that they, like intentionally deorbit things, right? Is with long conductive tethers. So I wonder, like, I wonder how much each of these factors contributed to its deorbit speed. I mean, we know it's electrically conducting, so. Right. <laughs> we know that for sure. <laughs> All right. So Dennis, you have next week, this week in space by history, and the date range is the first through the 7th of March. And what is the clue? Clue for next week in 2004. Five minus seven equals 46 plus 21. That sounds like solid math. All right. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> if anyone else out there thinks they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay. Upcoming spaceflight events got like six of those. So a lot today or this week, this upcoming week. And Ben, what's the first one? All right. So first up is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 411. It's uh, 46 satellites this time. Uh, it's got a launch window running from Friday, February 25th at 1540 hours UTC uh, to the 25th at 2137 hours UTC. Uh, this one is flying out of Vandenberg uh, from SpaceX's uh, Space Launch Complex 4E. And then after that, we have a on the 25th, we have a Long March 4C, and that is flying um, LSAR-01. And this is a Chinese civilian L-band radar Earth observation satellite. So that's all we know about it. Launching at 2344 UTC. It looks like an instantaneous launch window. It is launching from pad launch area 4 and uh, from Jiuquan in China. And then also on uh, February 25th, we have a non-launch event, which is Parker Solar Probe's perihelion number 11. And so this is the second of seven at this particular distance uh, or orbit around the sun before its next Venus flyby. And so this takes it uh, 9.2 million kilometers or 5.7 million miles, uh, which, you know, in astronomical terms, it's quite close. Uh, and it is going to be screaming by at 163 kilometers per second or 364,000 miles per hour. Man, that's a fast spacecraft. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cooking. In more ways than one, huh? It's weird to have scientific notation <laughs> in our show notes. We don't normally yeah. deal with numbers that big or small. After that is an electron. Uh, this mission is called the Owl's Night Continues. Um, this mission is to launch Strix Beta. Um, you might be familiar with Strix Alpha, or I think we actually called it Strix A uh, on this show for some reason. Uh, but Strix Beta is the upgraded version of Strix Alpha. Um, so Strix is a satellite constellation that does synthetic aperture radar imaging of the ground. Synspective is the name of the company that's uh, building this constellation, and they want to put 25 uh, Strix satellites uh, in orbit. These guys are, are pretty cool. I mean, it's it's uh, civilian uh, ground imaging uh, capable of a resolution of one to three meters-ish. This is the second Strix satellite, I believe, and they're planning on having a total of six 
uh, by the end of the year. Uh, the Owl's Night Continues is going to be launching on Sunday, February 27th at 2035 hours UTC uh, off of the Mahia Peninsula in uh, in New Zealand. After that, on the 27th, we have another Long March, Long March 8, the core only, so no side boosters, and it is launching Hainan 1 and 4 other satellites. And a quick Google tells me that Hainan 1 is a small Earth observation satellite, basically for tracking ships at sea, things of that nature. It'll be launching with a window of 0130 UTC through 0630 UTC. Uh, so big launch window launching from Wonchong Satellite Launch Center uh, from pad 201. And then finally on March 1st, we have an Atlas V that is going to be heaving up a big old GOES satellite. And this particular one is GOES-T. Uh, which will be renamed GOES-18 once it makes it to orbit, hopefully. And so uh, this uh, Atlas V will be in the 541 configuration, so that means the 5-meter fairing, the four solid rocket boosters, and then the single-engine Centaur upper stage. This one has been delayed since last December uh, three times, and so let's hope it makes it to orbit this time around. And so again, that's March 1st with a window from 2138 to 2338. UTC, which is uh, 4.38 to 6.38 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it will be flying out of Slick 41 at the Cape. All right. Well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events for this week. All right. And that means that it's time to deal with the show for this week. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Sam, Colin, Deskin, Mike, VT, Chubby, Alex, and Gopal for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.